Now, one of the reasons why I have this little honey with me is there is nothing more exciting in a family than the birth of a child. I'm telling you right now. And um, parents, they're okay, but grandparents, they really get it. We've been there and done that, and now we're looking for the next generation. So what, what is so great about when, when we have a new addition coming into the family, there's this great love that's going, but there are two things that happen when every baby is born. That's you, honey. Um, the first thing that happens is, is that every baby is born into a family. Now, those families are not necessarily functional. Matter of fact, uh, here's what I like to say. We're all dysfunctional. It's just that some of us are more dysfunctional than others. That means you. But nonetheless, um, everybody's born into a family which, with, with which they identify or they're identified with. The second thing that happens is the babies have certain physical characteristics. Like she might have her mom's eyes or her dad's eyes. She could have her mommy's nose or daddy's mouth. There are characteristics of our little bambinos that are from the family that they're born into. And the thing is, is that those characteristics are only magnified the older they get. You get to see more things. And the other great part is, is that those characteristics and traits start to become a little personality in that little person or big person. Right, P? Do you love Jesus? Yeah, you do. Or you're learning to. So here's one last thing I want to tell you about physical birth. Once you're born, you're born. You can't undo it. It's not reversible. You're born. Give me a kiss. We did it. All right. Okay, bye. I want you to remember something. Now, if you haven't been, I mean, if you're fairly new here, you may not have heard me say this before. But what is true in the physical realm is often true in the spiritual realm. And so when, when we come into, you know, what it, we know about being a part of God's family, coming to the family of God through faith in Jesus is that there is a pronouncement made by God about us and on us. And it's from Ephesians 1. It says this. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I want you to understand that. He predestined us before predestined us for adoption to himself. When we're adopted into the family of God, it's not necessarily like a lot of adoptions you've seen in other places with other families. I've seen other families where kids that have been adopted, they kind of end up being like second. They're not part of the original family. They're part of the family, but they're almost like a second class. That doesn't happen in God's family. When you're adopted as a son or daughter into God's family, we become a child of God. We, 
When we become a Christ follower, we're God's children. We're adopted into God's family. He treats us like sons and daughters. We have the full rights of Jesus in this family. We have the same rights that Jesus has. We have everything God promised to Jesus is now going to be ours as well. And so I want you to understand that as we go through this and we look at it, that we will receive our inheritance along with Jesus the day that we get there. We're not getting all the inheritance here and now, but we will certainly have it all when we get there and then. As we understand um, the author, uh, Apostle John, he wrote the Gospels and then he wrote three letters to the churches. And in those letters that he wrote and in his Gospel, he has a favorite phrase. It's going to be a part of our scripture that we're going to look at today. And so we're going to be studying it. So look at 1 John 5, 1. Now, okay, let me just, let me just take a little break here. I know a lot of you guys come with your device, and you can look up your scripture on the device. A lot of you are going like, why bring a Bible to church? Because Pastor Ken always has the scripture up there, so I don't need to bring it because I can see it right there. Here, let me tell you why. You need to bring your Bible to church, your physical Bible to church. Bring a pen, your Bible, because there's going to be a verse that when it comes up on the screen or you hear it, you're going, God's going to drill down right here, and he's going to say, you need that one for life. So you need to underline it so that you remember where it is. Okay? So we're not saying don't bring your Bibles. We're saying we're helping you out here, but you should bring your Bibles as well. Okay, end of commercial. Back to the message. All right. 1 John 5.1 For everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Being born of God is the spiritual birth that gives us the status of sons or daughters in the kingdom of God. Hang on a second. I just got a little thirst going on here. Sorry, I should have had this up front and not been a distraction. The spiritual birth is just like the physical birth in this. You can't undo it. Now, you're going to go like, well, I know people who were Christians following Jesus and then they turned their back on God and, and, and walked away from God. That's a whole different subject on, in theology because if you remember, Judas walked with Jesus for three years and he betrayed Jesus, turned him over to be crucified. And he was with Jesus all the time. And so even though they're with us, they may not be one of us. The Bible makes that really clear. Only God knows the heart. That's why we don't make the judgment on that. But the key to new birth is faith in Jesus. And it is this faith in Christ that results in new birth. Belief is a sign of new birth, not a consequence of new birth. You get that? So when you start... When you put your faith in Christ, you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You know that He's the one that forgives your sins and cleanses you from all sins. When you have that belief going on, you are a child of God. It's not because you became a child of God that you start to believe those things. You believe those things, and then you become a child of God. 
That's the process in which it all sets up for us. And so in John's Gospels, as, uh, in his Gospel, particularly as he's introducing Jesus at the very beginning of this, as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, he's introducing Jesus to the world through his writings. He also tells us what Jesus' relationship with us is going to be like and how that relationship is fashioned by God for our benefit. The relationship we have with Jesus has a benefit for us. And here's what it says in John, the Gospel 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. We became children of God. Is your wood wet this morning? That should have gotten you fired up. You're a child of God. I mean, there is nothing greater on your resume than that. You put that down there on the first thing. Child of God. You should all go back to your Facebook page today, change your status to child of God. Some of you are going, what's a Facebook? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I just heard it kicked around a little bit. John's making sure that we have a clear picture of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. In essence, John is saying that faith is the condition and sign that we are in relationship with him. New birth comes. You know, it's it's a natural thing. Little P here, she loves her Grandma Lou. And she loves me. And she loves her auntie. But when things are going a little bit south, she goes to mom. She has this deep love with her mom that she doesn't have with us. That's what children... Children develop this sense of belonging and trust and love with their parents. It's just the most natural thing. It's the face they see the most. It's the person who cares for them most. They feed them. They change them. They burp them. They put them to bed. They bathe them. They change them. They rock them and hold them when they're sick or when they're cutting teeth. That's what a parent does. And it creates this bond of love between the child and the parent that that child will never have with anybody else. Even when they get married, the love that they have with their spouse is going to be different from the bond of love that they have with their parents. It's all natural. That's the way God designed it for us to come into this. And so when we start to understand all that God has done for us in bringing us to redemption, our love for Him just flows like that of a child to its parents. It's just natural because we love God, because we understand what He has rescued us from. We understand how He interacts with us every day in our life. And regardless of how we treat God, He still loves us. That's one of the most magnificent things we can ever understand. And Paul gave us that understanding of what this new relationship of God looks like. It's found in Romans 8, where he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, slash daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you get that? Do you notice that? It says right there, the 
We receive the Spirit, capital S, Spirit of Adoption. That capital S is the Holy Spirit that we receive that, that brings to us and confirms in our hearts and our spirits that we belong to God. And it's really important for us to understand that. In this passage in Romans, you see at the end of it says, because of this this relationship we have through Jesus Christ, we become children, we now cry, Abba, Father. And Abba is the Aramaic word that is approximate of the word Daddy. It, It goes... To intimacy is what it's talking about. Because we are family. And we can come to God, the God of the universe, not as the God who's out there somewhere, far removed from us, but as our Heavenly Father, who is up close, personal, and wanting to have intimacy with us. John is saying that everyone born into this family of God will have a deep love for the Father. But notice what else he says in in verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves those who have been born of him. That's pretty significant. That's key. We, We need to get our minds around that. We have been born into this spiritual family with all kinds of brothers and sisters. Here's the deal. We have brothers and sisters from all around the world. All around the world. Matter of fact, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we have a church, our largest church in the world, is in Vietnam. Unbelievable. Do you know how many people attend the church in Vietnam? One million people. That's a busy church. They got a lot going on. And you, how, how can that even be the truth when what happened back in the 60s and 70s and 72 when everything went, went crazy and haywire and the north invaded the south and, and they went quiet and everything went underground and Christians were being persecuted. You would think that they came in and they snuffed out the gospel of Jesus and that Jesus would never revive again in that country. And yet we have a church of a million people there today. That's because they understand who their father is. That there are brothers and sisters all around this world that we've never met yet. One day, we'll be sitting around this huge banquet table eating the finest of meats and drinking the most superb wine. If you don't like wine, you might want to start practicing a little bit here. Start with grape juice. That's a good place to start. Now, here's the interesting thing that that happened this week. I was having a conversation a few days ago with a guy from town. And he was telling me about a conversation he had just had with another fellow Christ follower. And that fellow Christ follower was talking to this fellow about yet another guy who follows Jesus. And he was telling him how bad of a person that Christ follower was. He had some real issues 
going on about that guy. There was this whole area of unforgiveness in his heart. It was absolutely mind-boggling to me that there is someone who calls himself a, a Jesus follower, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, and yet over here on this side, he's running this guy down. There's definitely anger and bitterness and resentment, and that all flows from an unforgiving heart. And that's a really, really bad place to be. Do you know how bad that is to have an unforgiving heart? Let me tell you what Jesus said. Because Jesus kind of, well, he's the expert on forgiveness. Jesus, you remember a few weeks ago, I was reminding you of the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. And what was that? To pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That's our request. Lord, teach us to pray. At the end of Jesus giving them a kind of, here's how we pray, here's what he said. This is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, 6th chapter. Jesus said this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, okay, trespasses, uh, let me define that for you. It's uh, transgression, We've talked about transgressions, we've talked about iniquity, and we've talked about sin. Trespasses is wrapping all three of those up into one word. So, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Here comes the but, and it's a big but. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I thought God's love was unconditional. Well, certainly His love is. But apparently, forgiveness has some kind of a condition to it because it's what it says right there. You want to you wanna be forgiven by God of all the crap you've ever done in your life, then you have to come to the point where you're willing to forgive those people who have done crap in your life. In the words of our office administrator here, she would say, suck it up, buttercup. Get over it. She's really got a tender heart. Compassionate, filled with mercy. Yeah. So, this whole idea is, is that unforgiveness, I mean, unforgiveness is the breeding ground for for bitterness, anger, and resentment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes love. We've talked about this a lot. And among the things he says about it is that love does not keep a record of wrongs. Or if I were to put it in a little bit different terminology, a book of evil. Love does not keep a book of evil. Because when we, when we really understand what it is, we will hardly even notice when others wrong us. When we are fully functioning in the love of God, we will hardly even notice when others do wrong. If we do notice, Jesus said there's a way to deal with that. So sometimes when couples argue, and I know the married people in our church just don't do this, but sometimes people from the Baptist church, when they argue, 
One will bring up something that the other did over a year ago. We know, you know what that's called, right? It's called being historical. It comes up and it's thrown out on the plate, but, it, but true love doesn't do that. True love does not keep records of wrong. If someone wronged you last year and they received your forgiveness if from that incident, it should never be brought up again. It's done with. It's gone. It's at the foot of the cross. The blood covers it. It's, it's dealt with. Just imagine if God treated us the same way we treat one another. Suppose God said to you today after church, when you sin, when you sin today after church, and God says to you, you know, I seem to recall that you did something like that last month. Now, I know I forgave you, but I really think we should bring it back up on the table and rub your face in it again. I don't think that's the God I want to worship and serve and love. I'm thankful that he doesn't do that. I'm thankful that he's the one that that forgives us all. It's like Corey Ten Boom, who is this author who rescued hundreds and thousands of Jews and escaped persecution in World War II from the Nazis. And she said this, when God forgives us our sins are now cast in the deepest sea, and a sign then is put up that says, no fishing allowed. That's what love is. That is the birthmark of being a child of God. What we're talking about are the birthmarks of God that he puts on our life when we step into relationship with him. We have three distinguished birthmarks we're talking about today that are going to be revealed to us. The first one is the birthmark of love. We know that that's that's highly important to Jesus because Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, people are going to know you're my disciples, that you love me and that you follow me and that you obey me by the way that you love one another. The really funny thing is that does not ever go out of style or out of date. It sticks with us forever. So the first one is the birthmark of love. The second birthmark is closely related to this first birthmark of love. The second birthmark is obedience, found in two verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. When we receive a command from the Lord, which is found in His Word, you want to know what God is saying to you in your life? Read the Bible. He'll tell you. Open your eyes. Open your ears. God, show me. He'll show you. And when He shows you, as a Christ follower, we should just obey. We don't need to just talk about God's commandments. We don't need to just memorize them. We don't need to just understand them. We should carry them out. We should do exactly as God says we should do. That's called obedience. 
And it's interesting. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for us to step into obeying everything he's commanded us to do. That's what he wants. He says that's the highest credentials of love is to be found in our obedience. And obedience is the proof of love that we have for God. Those are not my words. Those are God's words. Because in 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of ram. This is back in the day when you had to make a sacrifice for your sin every single week. You had to go and spill blood. You had to do all this stuff, all these religious things in order to be right with God. And God's going like, I would rather have you obey me. Now let me put this into context for you so that you get a better understanding of it. To obey God is better than preaching about obeying God. To obey God is better than singing about obeying God. To obey God is better than having a Bible study about obeying God. To obey God is better than bringing your offering to church. To obey God is better than having a prophetic word about obeying God. And to obey God is better than having a word of wisdom about what it means to obey God. Our greatest delight is to obey the word of God. Simply put, to obey God means to do what he says to do. So here's here's the simple question we ask ourselves. Am I doing what God asks me to do? Are God's commands burdensome? Are they heavy? Or are those commands difficult to keep, too hard to keep? So my question really is, what exactly is the motivation for obeying God? Does it come from duty? Does it come from obligation? Does it come from fear? I'm I'm afraid if I don't do something for God that he's going to either strike me with with some kind of an illness I'll never recover from. I'm afraid that if I don't obey God, he's going to remove his blessing from me. I'm going to end up in the poorhouse. I'm afraid of uh, not obeying God. And so we are um, obeying God out of fear. The other one is manipulation. Do we obey God out of manipulation? I want to manipulate God into owing me something. Okay, God, I've done this for you, and I've done this for you. I've obeyed you here. I've obeyed you when it really wasn't that easy. Now, you need to do this for me. We try to manipulate God with our obedience. And that's not what the Bible says. Our primary motivation for keeping God's commandments, our primary motivation for obeying Him should be our love for Jesus. After all, He is the one who gave himself and gave us the commandments in the first place. And and by the way, just in case you didn't know, obedience brings freedom. If you're struggling, being bound, check out obedience. It will set you free. But I want you to think about it. When John says God's commandments are not burdensome, he doesn't say they're easy to keep. He just says they're not burdensome or oppressive. 
And I believe that's the invitation from Jesus in Matthew. It's all about the call that he extends to those who've been beaten up by life. It's the call to those who've exhausted themselves from performance and duty to God rather than love. And here's what that call is from Matthew 11. Come to me. That's the invitation right there. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that not sound like the greatest invitation we could ever receive for our souls? We're so busy. We're so wound up. We're so, we've got so much noise. And I'm not talking about the noise that's around us out here. I'm talking about the noise that's in our own head, in our own soul, in our own spirit. We're so stirred up with all kinds of things that we have a hard time hearing the whispered voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Jesus says, come. You come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. Take up the invitation. Make no mistake about it, though. It's not easy to be a consistent Christ follower, to follow Jesus in the struggles of the world we live in today. All the crazy nut jobs out there shooting people. All the crazy thoughts from politicians. I mean, the craziness is enough to make you to ask Jesus to take you right now. And yet, he's called us to live in obedience to to his commands. And I want you to know this. It will take every ounce of your spiritual strength and all that God can give through you to live for God successfully. It's not easy to live for God in this world. But that is not what John means. He means that God will never give you a command without giving you the strength to fulfill it. The wonderful thing about being a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, is that God's command can be carried out because He has placed His Holy Spirit in us, within us, who gives us the motivation and the power to live out the commands of God. We can't do it in our own strength. That's why He... Jesus said, it's better for you that I go to be with my Father so that you will receive the promised Holy Spirit who's here to help you, to guide you, to give you power and strength. He's the one that's going to make this all possible here on earth. Without Him, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. It's important for us to understand it. No duty is too difficult when performed out of a heart of love empowered by the Holy Spirit. The third birthmark of a Christ follower is faith, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith in Jesus and new spiritual birth are inseparable. They go together. You can't separate one from the other. Faith in Christ is necessary for us to be a new creature. And new life can only occur when we're connected to Jesus. Our life in Christ begins with faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But faith is also a necessary component 
to live in Christ every single day. Every day of our lives, we are faced with three great enemies that want to come in and mess us up. Those three great enemies of our soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. When I say devil, or I say Satan, I want to clarify this for you. I'm not talking about that individual, because I don't think he's here to mess with us. I think he, he's got an army of demons that come to mess with us. He's got bigger fish to fry, so he's off doing something somewhere else. He is not all-knowing, all omniscient. He can't be everywhere at once. He has a, a host of demons that do his dirty work. So when I refer to that, it's just one of those nasty little demons. So when we, when we think about it, we've got this thing going on in, in, in and around us that the enemy of our soul we face every day, and the first one is the world. Now, the world She dresses like a prostitute, and her name is infidelity. She comes near with alluring offers in her hand. She whispers seductively in our ear and promises a world of pleasure. She flirtingly lies to us by telling us that real joy comes from loving her and not loving Jesus, our Savior. She flirtingly lies by telling us that she has the power. She has every resource we need. She lies to us all the time. The world is a powerful seductress. So the question is, how can we win over her temptations? John says that daily victory comes from recognizing that faith teaches me how to overcome the world. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, where it's got the... the Hall, the hall, the the hall of fame of people who are in faith from the Old Testament, and when you see them, those people in the Old Testament, they gained their victory by faith, not by intellect, not by power, not by will, but only by faith. The second enemy of our soul that we all face is the enemy, Satan, and when I talk. Uh, When I talk about this, I just want you to understand he has one intention, one mission in life. And his intention and his mission in life is to come and rob, kill, and destroy in your life, cause total mayhem so that you're a total mess and you can't think a thing about Jesus. That's what he's wanting to do. Now, here's the thing I want you to to also understand is we should never overestimate his power. But we should never underestimate his power. If we go about our life acting as if the devil has no interest in us, that he's not going to do anything to me, we just kind of act like he's not there, I'm going to tell you he's a sneaky little dog. And he's going to sneak up behind you. And he's going to bite you so hard that your whole life falls apart. We are to be vigilant about this. He walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone that he can devour. You know who he devours? People who aren't paying attention. That's exactly who he devours. So here's the thing I want you to get out of this. He is a defeated foe. He is beaten. He's got nothing. But on the other hand, if we act like 
He does because he's already beaten. We don't have to pay attention to him. You're going to get it. He'll smack you one real hard. And it's not pleasant. And even though he is defeated, it doesn't mean we have finished our fight with him. And God has given us a weapon, and that weapon is called faith to win the battle. (coughs) I want you to know something about Satan. And this comes from what I've learned over the 58 short years I've had on this planet. He's a bully. You know what bullies do, don't you? They find someone weak and then they pick on them. When I was in high school, a junior in high school, I was a target for bullies. I wasn't as robust as I am now. (laughs) I wasn't as tall as I am now. I was a skinny little runt. My grandfather swore I had 50 tapeworms because I was so skinny. Oh, to have those tapeworms back again. (laughs) But I was a little bit of a target for bullies, and it was because I was little. It might have had a little bit to do with I ran my mouth sometimes, but I don't think that was... I really don't think that was it. When I was a junior in high school a little tiny runt. There was a guy that went to my school. His name was Sarge. He was a grade younger than me, but he was like six years older than me. You do the math. Sarge, the reason he was called Sarge is he wore an army jacket every day and he wore army boots with his pants tucked into him. He got the nickname Sarge. Now the crazy thing is, is that Sarge was friends of my younger brother, John, or as we call him, John John. And, but with me, there was just something about me he didn't like. There's something about him I wasn't fond of either. So we didn't get along that well. And one day, I had to leave my, my class early because I had to go down to the office and do something. And when I came around the corner in this empty hallway, there was Sarge. And when I walked past Sarge, he threw his arm out and he hit me right here in the stomach. And I went, oh, and being the good, Christian, loving man that I was, I spun around and hit him as hard as I could right in the small of the back. You can imagine what happened. It was on like Donkey Kong. (laughs) Next thing I know, he's calling me sucker, and I'm calling him something, and we're throwing our books down in the middle of the hallway. We take our jackets off. And, And have you ever watched high school boys start a fight? It's like... Dude, you just better pack it up or I'm going, to be white. I'm going to be all over you like white on rice. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to take you and I'm going to mop. You know, they get this little thing. And so that's what we were doing. We are puffing up a little bit. It's really hard to puff up when you weigh like 120 pounds. <laughs> anyway, so we got this thing going and we were, you know, and I mean, he was three inches taller, at least 35 pounds heavier. I kind of already knew that I was going to get hurt bad. I was going to get a broken nose, bloody lips, black eye. Something bad was going to happen. But I, I'd already gone too far. I was into this thing, so I was going to see it through. Next thing I know, he goes, you know what? You'd be a waste of my time. And he picked up his books and he started to walk off. I go, that's right, sucker. You get out of town. I'd be all over you like ugly on an ape. <laughs> <laughs> 
I bring the hurt locker to your front door. I reached down and I picked up my books, grabbed my jacket, turned around, bam! Smacked right into my older brother, Dwight. And standing next to Dwight on the right was my best friend, Scott. And Scott's cousin next on the other side, we called him Two Tall Tony. Dwight, six foot two. Scott, six foot four. Two Tall Tony, six foot six. Those guys pretty much made up the defensive front line of our football team. (laughs) I'm not that smart. I'm going, did you see that? Did you see that? I scared that sucker off. I'm telling you, he will never mess with me. And my brother's going, you know it, son. You got it. (laughs) Well, what I didn't realize, I found out a couple years later from my best friend, Scott. He said, you know that day you ran into Sarge and you and Sarge were having this thing? Yeah. He goes, your brother standing behind you. You didn't know he was there. He gave Sarge some sign language, and it went like this. Pretty much, if you didn't read sign language, don't touch him because the three of us will grind you into powder. Sarge picked up his stuff and left. The bully was gone. The bully didn't leave because of me. The bully left because who was behind me, who had my back. I'm telling you right now, the world and Satan are the bullies and Jesus and the Father And the Spirit stand behind you telling the bully to hit the road. He's got the victory over the bully for us. We just have to stand in that victory. That's that's what, he's just a bully. Now the last one of the three great enemies of our soul is our own flesh. And that's a tough one. Because what happens is our flesh will put us into places where we should never go. We have the tendency to say things we should have never have said. And when we say things, those words come out, they're like a bullet. You can never retrieve them and put them back in the gun. They're gone. They're going to do the damage that they're going to do. It's a bad deal when your mouth opens up in the flesh. The flesh will will bring thoughts to your mind that you are going to think and then your flesh will act out on the thoughts that you have. And so the, the Bible tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our default is not to do righteousness. Our default is to do sin. And so we have this battle with the flesh. But what Jesus has told us, what the Word of God says, is that we, we train our flesh by faith. We come and we deal with our fleshly thoughts By faith, because the Word of God tells us that we transform our minds by the renewing of our spirit in God. We can can take control of this thing. It tells us to think on things that are noble, lovely, honorable, beautiful. Think about things that are godly. That's how we take control over the flesh. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And particularly, God made a promise to us that when our flesh starts to get out of control and it's leading us into this temptation that's lying before us, we can step into temptation and and we know right at that moment that God said there's no temptation that has seized you that is not common to man. And when that temptation comes, God provides a way out. In other words, He's got an exit door for you to get out of the temptation that you're in. Now, you have to exercise some, 
some discipline, some willpower. By the Holy Spirit, you have to have other people around you so you can say, hey, that's the exit door. I'm going to take it because I'm not going down this path again. And that's how we defeat the enemy of the flesh. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It's through prayer. It's through the reading of the word. It's through the fellowship of the saints, of the ecclesia being together so that we can encourage one another. That is what we are called to do. The key is believing in Jesus, putting your faith in him for whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Our faith in Christ provides us the victory because as John says, we have overcome through faith. We don't provide our own victory. The church will not provide your victory. Your parents will not provide your victory. Your inheritance will not provide your, your victory. Your pedigree will not provide your victory. Your faith in Jesus is the only thing that will provide victory for you in this life. So step into it. That's the birthmark that God has given to each one of us. We do what we do because we've been born of God. And when I keep God's commandments, I have victory over the world by faith because of who I am and because of whose I am. Do you want to find victory in life with Christ? If so, John says in these verses, the victory express runs on two tracks, trust and obey. Christ followers don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Let me say that again. Christ followers don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Christ has already won the victory for us at the cross. At the cross, he defeated sin. He defeated guilt. He defeated shame. And he defeated the devil. Now he asks us by faith, to trust Him, to follow His lead, and become disciples who make disciples. When we fight this battle, everybody wants to know who's the winner. We're the winners. Because of the battle that Jesus fought on our behalf, we're the winners. As a child of God, we all bear these three birthmarks. The birthmark of love, the birthmark of obedience, and the birthmark of faith. May these birthmarks identify all who follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, your goodness to us is beyond all measure. You have given to us everything we need to win the victory. You have given us your love, which knows no bounds. You've given us the ability to love where others can't love. You have given us the opportunity and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to step in and obey you at every level. You're not just asking us to come and obey you on things that are simple. You're telling us the difficult things need to be obeyed as well. Big and small, obedience across the line. And when we can't do it, we have been empowered by your Holy Spirit. So we pray today that you would empower us to, to show the birthmark of obedience. And then, Father, strengthen our faith. Many times... We let our faith wax and wane and become weak. Strengthen us through your Holy Spirit to empower faith in our lives to live the way you've called us to live. We love you, Jesus. We ask for your guidance in our lives. We ask 
that you would work in our hearts. We pray in your great name, Lord. Amen.